Good morning. It's always good to, uh, to be here and to see you. I'm going to spend a little more time just looking at you this morning and the next few Sundays, just so I won't forget um, how much we appreciated that. But I, I don't want anyone, many of you have, have already begun to, to kind of uh, say kind goodbyes and stuff like that. Hold off on that. I'm going to be here <laughs> till March 5, right? Now you need to focus on next Sunday, right? When uh, the new pastor comes in view of a call, be praying for that, invite friends for that, Let's pack out the house uh, next Sunday uh, for that. So for now, we're just going to concentrate on God's Word, and today is as it is every time we we meet to worship a special Sunday, but there's just something special when we gather around the table. I'll say more about that when we get to that, but I want us this morning to look at the story of Jacob, a story that is about as important as any of the stories we have in the Old Testament, and not the least because it has this powerful, strong, existential kind of quality where Jacob meet God at the crossroads of life. And there's something very special going on here. We know the story of, of Jacob, that he is a man who was troubled from the very, very beginning. Already in his mother's womb, uh, Rebecca felt like this was was something where they were fighting. There's a pair of twins in there, and they're already fighting uh, in the womb. And so um, we know as soon as they came out that there were trouble in paradise, so to speak. They name him Jacob, which means the swindler, the trickster, the one who gets for himself what really does not belong to him. And it wasn't long until that, as they were growing up and, and, and there was a very clear sense that Esau, the father, I mean, Isaac, the father, loved Esau, the older son of, of the twins, and the mother liked the younger son. That's kind of the definition of dysfunctional, isn't it? Uh, there's all kinds of things. And, and, and Jacob came and he tricked his older brother. One time he came in, he was hungry, and um, he just wanted something to eat, and, and Jacob had just fixed some, and he gets the right to be the firstborn. And then, of course, of that, there became so much strife in this whole situation, he had to flee. And through it all, God kept giving him promises that he was going to be the one through whom blessings would flow. And yet, Jacob kept doing his own stuff, and he kept creating difficulties throughout. He, as he was fleeing from home because the tensions were so strong he couldn't stay, he might have been even killed by his brother, uh, God meets with him on a, in the desert and gives him this vision during a dream of a big ladder and angels coming up and down and the promise is again given to him that the blessing is going to come through Abraham, Isaac, and him. He comes up to his, his uh, relative Laban, uh, and again there, in, in no time, uh, all the trickery that we know about uh, Jacob, it, it creates an atmosphere of finally yet to leave. Uh, 
and just to get out of there. And it just kept being a difficult situation. And then, then we meet Jacob. In this dark moment of life, he's now trying to get back home. Verse 22 of chapter 32 of the book of Genesis. We can only imagine what happens here. He's, he's at the a levee at the river Jabbok, and he meets with God. And this, of course, is one of these stories that both poets and mystics and, and uh, philosophers and all have pulled out because this is this existential moment, in that moment where you just have to clarify who you are. That night, Jacob got up and took his wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with him. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? And Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Then he blessed him there. Let's just end with this. And try to look at this. Ever so briefly as an introduction to when we sit at the Lord's table even. Life at the crossroads. This is this defining moment. He meets with God. What is he to do? How is he going to find out who he is? There was this constant tension between the promises that God had given him and that he knew so well, and then all the trickery that he had spent his life doing to make himself succeed, that what now? Let me ask you, have you been there? Have you gotten to that moment ever well, you stand before God and God alone and said, God, I need to wrestle this through with you. You know, when you look at the story, I know all our theological kind of sensitivities are somewhat disturbed by some of this. How is it possible that God, God can struggle with man and that have some kind of consequence, right? I mean, God is almighty. Man is the weakest vessel ever. So, I mean, how is that even possible? This sounds on the surface somewhat ridiculous even. It, it's like 
You know, the big elephant and the little mouse, they were crossing a wooden bridge, and then the mouse had never tried that before with the elephant, and, and so he suddenly heard these humongous stomps as they're crossing the bridge, and, and the mouse looks up at the elephant and said, wow, have you heard how loud we can stomp when we walk across together? There's just something strange about this story when you think about it like that. But really when you look closer at this picture, this is not so much Jacob wrestling with God as it is God wrestling with Jacob. If you look at verse 24 and again 26 and 29, you'll see that that, that wrestling match is is both introduced, started, if you will, by God, and it is ended by God. Maybe you have even thought further and thought, I wonder why this was a wrestling, wrestling match. Olympic wrestling, just saying, right? So you don't get confused. Now, had this been a boxing match, right, it would have, you could either have kind of tried to hit back or you run away, whichever was the sanest thing to do. But when it's a wrestling match, there is no such possibility. You either have to do what you can to try to get yourself out of the grip of the other one, or you'll try to see if you can overpower the other one and, and hold the other one down, or, or maybe you can just surrender. But the wrestling does not make room for just a runaway. Now that's the setting of the picture. So the real question is, why is God willing to wrestle with Jacob? What can we learn from this moment? Life at the crossroads. How do you meet God in this, in this particular setting when, when the imagery that we get is that God had reduced himself to Jacob's size? But really, as I began, when you start thinking about this, and I think this is much more helpful for us to kind of look at this. Jacob's lifelong struggle. His life had gone down, 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 down. All of his life until this point, that's when it goes up. Well, surely he has had all kinds of material success, but in terms of quality of life, in terms of living his identity, it had been one big downward spiral. And God is not going to let him go until things have changed. And after this meeting with God, at this dark moment by the levee on River Jabuk, uh, until then it had been down, and after then things have changed. I've already mentioned the struggle that he had had in his life and the difficulty that he created for himself. So much of this, 
And it is so much that Jeremiah really uses that name, the, the swindler or the, the trickster, if you will, to, to kind of be this bad nickname like we say, and I said that on a Sunday night before here, this nickname that we use for Thomas, doubting Thomas, they were using then for the swindling Jacob. Jacob's identity was that he was a deceiver. It was all about himself. He had gotten it twisted in his mind, so that everything was about Jacob. His only safeguard, his rescue, if you will, was the promises of God. And they have been consistent throughout his life. They came to his mother even before he was born, that there will be two People in your womb, God said to Rebecca, right? And there's the old and the younger, the two people, the younger will rule the older. It was repeated again as he was growing up, repeated again in the dream I referred to, repeated again during his time with Laban, and so on and so forth. But all the way through, Jacob tried to do it his own way. If you notice even the dream, if you have your Bibles open, you can go to chapter 22, uh, chapter 28, or, or I would read just a couple of verses here. You see he had this amazing, amazing, amazing dream uh, where he saw this, this ladder. And then the Lord speaks and he says, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants a land and he goes on, promise upon promise. And no sooner is he done. And down in verse 20, Jacob had been so overwhelmed with this, he had built a place he called Bethel, the house of God, or Bethel, the house of God. And yet, verse 20, Jacob made a vow saying, if... God will be with me. Did you hear this? He had just had this most powerful, amazing kind of vision of God. Heard God speak, knowing that God's promises would come through, and he's still filling his language with, I wonder if I can truly trust God. If God will be with me, have you been there, friend? Meeting with God at that crossroad, and it will become this life-defining moment. Regardless of how much God had promised you, regardless of what you have read in his book, you're still going, but I'm going to do it my way. If God will do this, you see, when God's promises become really great, they also become terrifying because they're life-changing. And some of us, regardless of, of what we say, we've kind of gotten used to the life we have. Miserable as it even may, some people even enjoy having that misery to refer to and say, oh, my life is really bad. And there's some kind of protection for some people in that. 
But this is huge, friends. This is huge. God says, I'm going to change your life. I will heal your struggles. I will gather your family, splintered as it is at the moment. I will gather your family. I will take care of you. I will reprioritize your life. And some people, and certainly that was the case with Jacob at this moment, was not so sure he really wanted that. It sounded good. He loved meeting with God to hear him promise that. But then he took over himself again. You know, doubt, if God, and so on, Creates, of course, rejection, but he also creates just this uncertainty. I know God said, but, but maybe God needs some help. I may have some faith in this, but I'm uncertain about how I can trust that faith. I'm not sure. I think I better give God a hand. Ever been there? God, we say that even, right? As heretic as it is, right? It used to be called Pelagianism in the early church, and there was a heresy. People that believed that was kicked out of the church. God helps those who help themselves. And surely we have good, wonderful kind of arguments for, you know, we got to make sure if this is what God wants, that we are on his side and helps us. Absolutely, there's all kinds of good things to be said for that. But there's a sharp difference between us working hard because we trust God and then us working hard because we want to make sure that the way God plays out in our lives is our way. That's a very sharp distinction between that. A lot of people are kind of nervous on God's behalf, so much that, that the old preacher Spurgeon said, you know, we are not in the, in the department of trying to defend defend God. God is in the business of defending us. Resting on God's promises is not always easy. But unless we learn to do so, blessing will stay away. And Jacob Struggled with this. There was nothing he shied away from to make sure he got what he wanted. You can read more about it when you come home. We, we referred to that uh, weeks and weeks and weeks back as we dealt through, walked through that also on Sunday night. Jacob even makes use of bacon magical formulas to try to get his way. So he takes these sticks and, and strips some bark over it and, and puts it in front of the, the watering troughs where, where the animals are, are watering, but also where they are mating. 
And before he knew it, he had to look himself over the shoulder all the time, making sure what's going on. Surely he got everything that God had promised. He got the stuff of God, but he did not get the blessing of God. He confused, as I've said before, also success and significance. Yeah, I think you know that things that can be counted doesn't count much in real matters of life, right? You can remember that, right? Things that can be counted doesn't count much in the real issues of life. He got the stuff of God, but nothing beyond that. And so before he knew it, even after all these years in Laban's house, 20 hard years, he had to leave. And now he's at life's crossroads. Everywhere he had been, he had created enemies. He had heard God's promise, but he had not really rested in them. And here now comes his moment. Overwhelmed by darkness, not sure what, afraid that his brother would kill him once he crossed. What is he going to do? So he decides, he goes to the levee and he wrestles with God and God wrestles with him and God will not let him go. Think about this. He is there praying through, so to speak. Have you ever done that? Not in such a way that you keep praying because you want to force God's hand, but praying through till you recognize God has changed you. I get it now. None of us can totally guess what might have gone through Jacob's mind at this point. But I think if we have struggled like this, we have a hunch. This is an existential moment. This is that moment when God speaks most clearly. He's struggling, wrestling with God. Trying to figure that not everybody goes through that, right? Not everybody gets through that. Some people are submissive way earlier. We see Daniel. We talked about him last Sunday. You go a chapter over from what we talked about. You see in chapter 10 how he just yields to God. And immediately when he hears from him, he spends three weeks praying, not knowing, but he is totally yielded and surrendered to God. And then God comes and visits with him. The setting here seems quite different. I think some of us may struggle with emotions on that. We have in some way or another psychologized our relationship with God. So that we pray when we feel up to it. 
We pray when we are really upset about things. We got emotional energy to pray or, or we, we pray when we are just extraordinarily happy, whatever. Emotions drive often human prayer. But the Bible is pretty consistent, friends. Pray. Pray because you can trust God's promises. Pray because you can trust his word. Keep praying whether you feel God is close or near at all. Keep praying. Struggle through. You know he will hear your prayers, right? Regardless of how you feel about it. In fact, when you think about it for a moment, is maturity the very ability to control your feelings? You know, you meet immature people and their feelings completely rule their life. If they get upset, oh, everybody will know, right? They will make decisions in moments of unrest or in moments of Upsetness, or the other way. That's immaturity, right? We call it that. We see that. A mature person is one who, regardless of emotional upsetness or joy or whatever, is able to discern right from wrong. And that's true also with prayer. So now he is standing at the crossroads struggling wrestling with God. He had no choice. He had no choice. And then notice what happens. Jacob becomes a conqueror. Not because he conquered God, but because he was conquered by God. And it marked him for the rest of his life. I want you to not miss that. He was marked by this for the rest of his life. His name was changed. I don't know if you noticed or even thought that that mattered. God Asks Jacob, what is your name? And he says, my name is Swindler, untrustworthy. The one who takes for myself what I really belongs to me. That's what he announced when he said, my name is Jacob. And God says, your name shall no longer be Swindler or Trickster. Or one who is just about himself. Your name shall be Israel. One who has struggled with God and survived. And notice that God gives him a name that is not about him but about a people. It's an amazing change. God says, let me go. And the changed Jacob, who is now Israel, says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
God had waited 40 years to hear that, friends. Uh, you know what I mean? 40 years to hear this, at least, maybe more. But he was changed. And God marked him for life so that he will never forget that life encounter. When everything changed, because the man that used to say, yeah, I hear God's promises, but I'm going to do it my way so I can have my benefit and make my kind of stamp, he had been changed and he suddenly saw it was not about him, but about God. And everything changes. And you think this is a small thing when God hits him on the hip? And forever else, he will be limping. You know, you've never seen a picture of Jacob without him leaning over a staff, right? Even when we hear from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament how it was when he blessed Joseph's sons, this is what we hear on the deathbed of Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Marked by God every moment since, there, since then, that staff that support staff reminded him of God's victory in his life. How about you, friend? What about your mark or God's mark on your life? You know, Jacob is radically changed. Nothing really is the same anymore. If you go on with the story, you will see him just utter, I have seen God's face. I've seen God's face. Nothing will again be the same. This is about identity, friends. Jesus tells a little story, ever brief as it is, about a man who is walking in the field and he finds a treasure in the field. And so now he sells everything that he has and buys the field. The treasure. Nothing else is as important as that treasure. We're going to gather around the Lord's table. And that, friend, is a identity-creating meal. You know, when we remember... Memory is not just that we remember, oh yeah, that happened. 
if you reduce the Lord's Supper to that, or for that matter, any event for that, you're missing what this is all about. Jesus took the Passover meal that all the Jews were gathering around to remember how God took them out of Egypt through the desert into the promised land. And they told that story to the children who were part of that meal so that they would know who they were. We are the people of God. And Jesus takes that meal and he says, this is my body. This is my blood. And it's broken for you and it's poured for you that you will be one of mine. Are you hearing this? This is your moment, friend. This is an identity meal. I'm going to read the texts that we have from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we invite everyone here who believes Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior to participate. And by doing so, spent time praying about the very things we just talked about as your identity in this moment of meeting with God is changed. I'll read for you or with you right here. And then I'm going to ask the deacons to first distribute the bread and then the wine. And I'm going to ask you to hold it and we'll all partake together at the end. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus Christ in the night that he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me say a prayer. But more importantly, as you receive this, why don't you spend some time praying about your meeting and your trust in God's promises? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we hold these elements representing your body that was broken for us and your blood that was poured for us, fill our hearts, O oh Lord, not just with memories of a story we've heard, but with this life-changing encounter we have with you. May the memory of your grace and your suffering on 
Calvary translate into our lives with devotion and decision. May we hear from you even as we spend moments in prayer during this time. You say, I bless you. You're no longer going to be Jacob. I'm going to make you Israel. My people will follow me. Now bless each one in here, Father. Oh, how you know our lives even better than we do. Amen. And amen. Deacons, if you'd come up.